Welcome to CV Talks, a podcast from SilverCloud by Amwell, a leading digital mental health platform specializing in the delivery of evidence-based care. I'm Dr. Daniel Duffy. I'm a digital health scientist at Amwell. And in this podcast, I explore the science of digital mental health with leading mental health practitioners and advocates. In today's episode, I'll be looking at the mental health difficulties amongst children and young people in the UK and the circumstances surrounding this issue. My guest today has spent over 20 years working on the front line in mental health and shares her insight on this topic. Dr. Dominique Thompson is a GP who has worked with various schools and universities in setting up well-being programs and is a published author. Her most recent book, How to Grow a Grown-Up, provides advice to adults raising children as they navigate the pressures of school, social media and independence. My colleague, Dr. Katie Young, joined me for this conversation as we sat down with Dominique. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to just hear a little bit about your background for everybody listening, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, my background is really that I'm a GP uh, by training, and I spent nearly 20 years uh, at the coalface, if you like, looking after students mainly, um, so seeing one every 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, I did that um, on a university campus just looking after students. So my interest really has been in young people's well-being and health. And then more specialised than that, I became particularly interested in young people's mental health quite a lot because I was seeing more and I wanted to know more about it, but also because I just happened to find it fascinating. So about five years ago, I took a sideways step from clinical practice and I started to think more about why are we seeing more problems? What's happening? What's it like for young people now? What's... um, you know, the effect of different things like school, education, the world around us. But I really wanted to understand why I was seeing more young people with mental health problems. So I started to write some books for them, a series of um, books called the Student Wellbeing Series, which are just little handbooks for students and young people. I uh, then thought, hang on a minute, (laughs) it's probably not enough just to deal with it once they're students, but let's get upstream a bit. So that's why I got really interested in what parents need to know. So I wrote the book for parents with my colleague Fabienne, and we wrote How to Grow a Grown-Up because it feels like it's a very different world now for young people. So I've done lots of other projects and I'm obviously happy to talk about them, but that's how I've got into what I'm doing now. And I work with universities and other organisations on a day-to-day basis to help improve their student mental health and wellbeing support. So I guess that's a whole bag of experience. Like you've, <laughs> there's so much I want to ask, but I guess from an overarching point of view, from let's just say even pre-COVID to now, or even from 20 years ago to now, how have you really seen the landscape change in terms of the problems young people face today? Because I guess I got a flavour of that from your book, but I'd you know love to hear your thoughts now. Absolutely. I mean, it's very clear to me that when I started general practice and I was seeing students every day, then out of 30 or 40 consultations, I might see one or two for mental health. And by the time I took my sideways step about five years ago, this is pre-pandemic, um, it was 90% of my personal consultations. On, on average in the UK, I, I'm aware from the studies that it's 50% of university GP consultations are for a mental health problem. And in the normal population, civilians, non-students, it's one in three. So there's definitely something about young people needing more support. Um, and other studies have, have shown us that as well, that, uh, you know, being a student brings with it the challenges of being more anxious, less satisfied with your life, less happy. Um, we know that from studies that are done every year. 
So we do need to think about what is it that, you know, being either a student or just a young person, because we're seeing problems across the board, means, you know, what does that mean now? And why is it harder now, if you like, if I'm putting it that bluntly, to, to be young, that so much that it causes more anxiety, depression, eating disorders, self-harm and so on. So those are the questions I really wanted to explore. Um, and I felt that my TEDx talk, the one that's called What I Learned from 78,000 Consultations with University Students, kind of says what it does on the tin. Um, that one in particular outlines, you know, my my key thoughts around the pressures they're under, the, the pressure to be perfect all the time, the pressure to be the best, never to fail, never to let people down. And that's how they feel it, even though parents might not be saying that, families might not be saying that. So there's a lot going on for them. And then you add in things like climate anxiety or worries about racism or sexual harassment and so on. There is so much going on for them. Um, and I think they take it on board and they are really worried and uh, anxious as a result. And I think one thing I found really interesting from one of your TED Talks was how you delved really into perfectionism. And just like you were saying there, how there's this constant, you know, struggle for the young people in the modern age to be the best person they can before they even hit university. And then once they hit university, I guess the script is flipped because all of a sudden they're encouraged to do all of this deep learning, self-reflection that may not have otherwise been encouraged. So I found that really interesting. But in regards to perfectionism and how you may have addressed that in your clinical practice. Is that something, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. I mean, I really found it eye-opening uh, when I read the study that was done in 2017 by Curran and Hill. It's a seminal study. It reviews perfectionistic traits in young people over 30 years, what has happened. And it suddenly made sense to me. It was a real light bulb moment. Why I was seeing, you know, one of re many reasons, I'm sure, but why I was seeing so many more young people feeling so anxious, coming in and sitting in the chair in front of me and saying, I'm not on track for a first. And they'd been at university for six weeks. I mean, they were hardly even, you know, meeting people yet. And Young people coming to university now under such pressure, they feel they have to get a first, they have to be the best, they have to have the best CV, they have to have best internships. And there's so much less time, sometimes it seems, from what I was hearing, to just have fun, meet people, try new things, get stuff wrong, find out if you're any good at frisbee throwing or playing hockey or whatever that they haven't maybe tried before from wherever they've come from before. You know, the idea that you should just join a club for the fun of it seemed to have gone out of the window a bit. And people were saying to me, no, 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 I'm not going to join any clubs unless I can be the president and it can go on my CV. I thought, crikey, that means the cheese making club is going to be really stretched because <laughs> it's not always a CV thing, is it? But, you know, it just felt um, this huge pressure. And so when I read about perfectionism, the fact that it has gone up massively over the last 30 years in young adults, uh, obviously then one starts to ask why. I mean, it's a funny thing to be breeding in a whole generation. And maybe we can talk about that. But I really started to think, yeah, this is what I'm seeing. And the reason it matters is that perfectionism is so strongly linked with so many mental health conditions. You are more likely to have anxiety, depression, eating issues, obsessive compulsive disorder, unfortunately self-harm and suicidal thinking too, if you have a highly perfectionistic personality. It matters. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's 
such an important point to make, you know, that that although it's a, a general trend, it can, for a lot of young people, lead to much bigger problems um, in the long run. Um, there's, yeah, so many interesting things there. I think you really, though, you hit on, on the main question I have, which is around why are we seeing this? What is it? And again, you know, you touch on some of this in your book about what is it about society today that is really creating that greater need for perfectionism than maybe we saw in the past? Are there specific experiences young people are having now that, you know, didn't used to happen? Are there ways in which we're interacting with each other that, you know, are, are really creating kind of a hotbed um, for, for this perfectionism? Yeah, for me, I think there are probably two or three reasons we're seeing so much more uh, in the way of perfectionistic trades. Um, so I'd say there is definitely something about the fact that certainly in the UK, if you go to university now, it's very different in terms of selection and numbers going than it was you know, 50 years ago. So if you went in the 70s, you were one in seven. In the 80s, you were one in five to go to university. Now you're one in two, which means that young people know that every other young person out there is going to university, is getting a degree. So they feel they have to stand out. So there's that pressure. So then you look at stuff um, to do with the world and the culture and the society that they're immersed in. And this is a slightly, it's almost like humorous, really, when you think about it. But we have made everything competitive. This is one of my biggest bugbears. You know, it's one thing to have competitive sport and competitive exams and competitive, maybe a bit of singing and dancing, but I really resent competitive cake. And that is something that I have railed against endlessly. I mean, honestly, what next? But we have competitive pottery, competitive photography, painting, modeling, putting on your makeup, grooming your dog. I mean, where will it end? It is ridiculous. So the message, unfortunately, that it gives to the younger generation who've never known a world without that, because if like me, you're much older and the only thing that was competitive on telly in your youth was it's a knockout and no one aspired to that. Um, you know, now you can't just bake a cake. It has to be a bake-off and it has to be perfect. So the problem, and some people say, oh, it's just for fun. I said, the problem is the more perfectionistic you are, the less likely you are to try something new. So you just won't try. So you might be the next, I don't know, David Bailey, photographer, but you'll never know because you didn't try it because you weren't going to be immediately the best. And I think people sometimes struggle to understand, but that is the science behind perfectionism. So I really worry that we have a generation who won't try new things, who are afraid to fail. They can't make mistakes. And then my kind of third big thing that is different nowadays, and I certainly don't blame everything on it, is social media. And the reason that social media matters here is because it magnifies that competitiveness and comparison. So social media brings many, many positive things, not least of all videos of puppies. I mean, I wouldn't get through the day without them. So I completely accept there are positives. But of course, we must recognise that it has allowed everybody to constantly compare themselves, their lives, how they're doing, the competitive aspects of it. And that's one thing that really resonated with me about your book and the work that you've put out there, Dominique. It's because even though I'm not a parent, uh, the closest I have is my dog to parenting something small and vulnerable. Um, your material isn't sort of like, I'm just going to consume this and leave it. I feel like the work that you're putting out is like a primer that you can return back to at any time you want. And what I really liked as well is that it kind of scratched that sociology itch for me as well, because from exactly what you've said, 
there are so many structures at play here. And especially in your book, you know, I really got the sense that we seem to be judging this generation of young people using massively outdated lenses because you talk about like the myth of meritocracy, outdated education systems. So what are your thoughts about supporting the young people in, you know, at their mental health journeys in navigating through a society that seems somewhat overwhelmingly set up to go against them? And how do we support them? And I suppose even coming from our own, you know, personal research interests where Katie and I work as researchers in the field of digital interventions, where do you see mental health technologies supporting young people in their journey through this almost crazy society, I want to say? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on a couple of those things because there's nothing annoys me more than that phrase that you hear from pop stars and Hollywood actors that says, you can be anything you want to be. And I just think, what a load of old rubbish. You know, why are we telling people something that is so blatantly not true? I do, though, have to smile because my friend, who is a mum of a same age boy as me, she remembers saying to him, like in that way that we try when he was five, you can be anything you want to be. And he looked at him and went, I want to be a kitchen sink. And I just thought, what a random thing. But it, it just, she's just a oh, ridiculous boy. But it is that thing of we say this to them and it means nothing. Okay. So it just adds another pressure. And it's it's alongside, um, in, in a slightly smaller way, I'm also slightly sensitive to that, what do you want to be when you grow up question? Because actually, why don't we ask them? who they want to be, what kind of person, isn't that a much more important thing for them to shape and that they have control over than, you know, talking about jobs that, well, we don't even know if they'll exist, you know, in 10, 20 years time. Uh, they'll have a very different career from us. So I think we have to be a bit sensitive um, to the world they live in and that they inhabit and what message we give to them when we constantly ask these sorts of questions or say things like you can be anything you want to be. In terms of what we can do to support young people, I think there's loads. Um, and, you know, hopefully my books and TEDx's and I do loads of free resources. So if anybody says, oh, I don't want to buy a book, but I would like some of this sort of, you know, uh, background advice, I do a website, completely free, free blogs uh, on all these sorts of different topics called growingagrownup.com. And it's just there so people can dip in and out. Oh, I want to know a bit more about sleep or diet or when should I worry about them hiding in their room doing weights, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but what we can do uh, all of us, really. I think there are some things, you know, broadly, I mean, there are many things, so I'm just going to pick out a few. I really, really like encouraging young people to try new things. And that doesn't have to mean jumping off cliffs into the sea. <laughs> it could mean you try a new food that you're not so keen on. You know, you, you might start with a small push to your boundaries. Um, you might try, you know, a new sport or activity. Maybe your friends are into it. You know, maybe just encourage them to give it a go. It doesn't matter if you're not the best. Absolutely, we all start off being rubbish at something, but you might find you actually really enjoy it. I say to the students who say, I'm not joining any clubs, I'll be rubbish at them. I said, well, first of all, if you go along there, you might meet somebody else who's equally rubbish, but you have a good laugh and you go for a drink afterwards and you've met a new friend because that leads me on to number two, <laughs> which I probably should have started with because we know science shows it's the number one thing for human well-being. Humans need other humans. And so making new friends, connecting with new people, keep encouraging them to meet new people. 
you know, I don't mean like all the time to thousands of people. I just mean always in your life, learn that you're building that network all the time. It's not, um, you know, one and done kind of activity. You will meet friends at school, sure, but you'll move on to college, the workplace, university, um, parent friends, friends through activities, sports teams, you know, volunteering. So anyone who struggles with meeting people, volunteering is always my favorite suggestion. You know, try and meet like-minded people all trying to do something good. It's a really good way to meet people. Um, and then I guess I'm always a big fan of getting them to have a purpose, um, a mini purpose each day. I'm not talking about a life's purpose. You know, I'm not a big fan of that. But I do think having something most days doesn't have to be every day where you feel like, you know, I did something today that was useful or good or helpful, or I read a chapter of my workbook, or I baked a cake for granny. You know, it doesn't have to be an amazing thing. It's just that you did something and you feel good for it for yourself. So those are some of my broad well-being things. I, I personally am a big fan of digital support. Um, I've helped to develop several apps, which are um, great for students and young people, whether they're to help support self-harm issues or eating disorders or just the student health app which covers everything from hangovers <laughs> to festival foot or whatever you know all the things that we used to see um, in students so I'm very very positive about digital support as long as it um, feels safe and it's not going to make things worse I think that's really important it sounds obvious but it's really important and it may need to be done with someone alongside them or someone to check in with when I was reading your work and listening to you speak, it resonated an awful lot. Like I remember leaving secondary school here in Ireland and feeling like I am so ill-equipped for what is in front of me. And it was this sort of, you know, lingering dread about every day about having to navigate specific, you know, situations. Maybe it was a certain maturity thing, but... I had felt that if there was that level of support made available to me, because at that stage, you don't want people to know coming out of like your A-levels or your final exams, you don't want people to know that you don't know it all. And you arrive in these situations and it's like, I don't know if I should be reaching out to student welfare about how to navigate like typical life things. But, you know, of course, it's easy for me to say that with a with the useful app or some sort of website, you know, with support from somebody there, it would have been so much easier to say okay when I'm lying in bed at night I can think about and I can see all these sort of you know paradigms about how I can treat my distress as it's occurring or even how I could potentially use tools or to tackle what I'm encountering in my daily life and I think that's so important and you know having that at you know young, a lot of young people do have that at their fingertips right now because I think universities and schools are getting much better at providing those sort of resources and acknowledging that stress stressors are there if a young person were, was to come to you on a Friday afternoon where would you see technology fitting into your practice there what would you have liked to have given to somebody I mean you mentioned your career over 20 years what would you have liked to have been giving them 20 years ago through like a tech from a technology point of view or even from an online intervention point of view what do you think would have been useful it's a great question because there were so many times and going back you know 20 years where obviously none of that was an option and the weekend would sort of yawn ahead for that student i'd be possibly worrying all weekend that they were okay and you know we had to be a bit careful about you know not giving out our individual numbers but we would definitely make sure they had all the support numbers and the samaritans and things like that so you know i very much think that is a real issue and the great thing now is we do have these other options 
And what I I guess we want is like for them to have a friend in their phone, a friend in their pocket who is yet a bit professional because obviously your actual friends are good and important and probably the first person a student will turn to or a young person will turn to is their peers, of course. But you do need that professional, um, slightly more evidence-based, uh, balanced, um, you know, thought through response uh, that you get from really good digital support, really good technology. Um, obviously, it's it's often a stopgap or something that will get them through a difficult time and then they can come back and see the person-to-person, face-to-face support, you know, the next week if they need it. But having something that you feel is reliable and safe and evidence-based and consistent I feel those are the things that I could now offer if I was doing my surgery uh, these days on a Friday afternoon, certainly my colleagues who are still there do. You would have options now that felt reliable and that you had confidence in saying, look, here is a first port of call. It's not the answer to everything, but it will get you through potentially difficult hours, sometimes three o'clock in the morning. This is the problem is so often the crises occur out of hours. It's a 24-7 and, you know, it's not going to be a phone that doesn't get answered or an answer phone message. You know, it's someone or something that is there for you. And that, I feel, is a massive step forward. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think um, one of the things you highlight, again, in the book was this sort of discrepancy we see in like our very on-demand online world. I think you had a a comment in there that I think resonated with both Dan and I about you can order a pizza at two o'clock in the morning, but you have to wait three weeks um, to see a doctor. Um, Is that something you've seen a sort of change in the development of, I guess, you know, particularly since COVID, there's been a lot more um, kind of push towards having readily accessible remote interventions. Is that something you're seeing sort of being taken up more in the university world and, you know, that young people can also access as well? Well, absolutely. So, yes, I have a big issue with the fact that, as you say, I can order myself some shoes at 3am, but I can't get the medical advice (laughs) I need in quite the same way. And the problem is that I might think that's, you know, understandable because of all the barriers to getting healthcare and so on. But actually a young person who's 16, 17 will not understand why can I get one thing but not the other. So that's really my point with that. Um, I think that we have had to think creatively about how we support people more quickly because the massive increase in demand post-COVID. So as I said before, we already had a massive increase in demand for mental health support and students feeling vulnerable and so on. That Mm. has been made worse by COVID. Okay, so definitely the elderly population took the physical hit of COVID on the whole in general, uh, but the young people definitely took the mental health hit. Again, generalising, but that is what we've seen. So the studies are all showing now, and there was a very interesting State of the Nation report came out from the UK government um, on the State of the Nation of Children, young people in 2022, And it consistently shows a rise in anxiety, plus, of course, lots of other associated issues. And the things that we've seen in other studies is eating disorders and self-harm have gone up massively. We have to get better at responding to those quickly. Um, But unfortunately, as we all know, uh, many staff were affected by COVID in lots of different ways. So staff have, have gone from the service or are being snowed under by demand. We can't just rely on the usual 
you know, business as usual, NHS service where there was a bit of a wait <laughs> already, but now people will just quite honestly say, oh, it's a two-year wait to get a, 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 the first appointment for, I don't know, child and adolescent mental health team of some sort or ADHD assessment or whatever. And you think, I mean, that's just two years of a young person's life where their brain is developing, you know, moment by moment, because your brain's not fully developed till your mid-late 20s. That is hugely potentially destructive and difficult. So anything that is, as I said before, safe and reliable and evidence-based that can help in between times, or certainly even an intervention earlier, um, that I think is of significant benefit. We are all trying to think of ways to support young people, yeah. um, but there's no quick answer. Yeah. Um, I want to pick up on a, a couple of things you said there about, um, you know, thinking about brain development and things. My background, actually, I I'm I'm, was a neuroscientist uh, working with, with adolescents. Um, and I think there's some really interesting things you picked up on in terms of what you were saying earlier about changes in in risk taking. And, uh, you know, you talked about trying new things, but there's a sort of whole theory around adolescence that it is the period where you go out and you try things and you take these risks. That's why we, you know, historically have seen, you know, more problems around alcohol use or teenage pregnancy or, you know, uh, car accidents and things, all these things, you know, there seems to be kind of like biological driver towards risk, risk taking uh, in adolescence and that, you know, bigger picture perspective, it's supposed to be a good thing, you know, to, to encourage that going into the world on your own, you know, creating that, that independence. I'm curious what you think about, you know, having noticed these trends where there is less risk taking um, in adolescence now and, and what you would see the potential impact that is for a child's kind of emotional and, and social development in the long run. Well, I mean, that's interesting because I think it's something that really fascinates me. I've been aware of it, obviously, since writing the book a couple of years ago, that mm. uh, we have the least risk-taking generation at young coming, you know, coming through now than, than we've ever had. What's that all about? Um, and in fact, uh, I wrote a blog uh, just a week or two ago called Are Our Teens Going to Enough Parties, which is <laughs> based on... Um, the paper that came out led by a team from New Zealand, but an international study sort of doing a, a review and overview of all of these risk-taking behaviours in thousands of young people from around the world, showing that they are categorically taking less risk. So there is obviously less smoking, less alcohol, less use of cannabis, uh, less early sexual contact, uh, less juvenile criminal behaviour. Now, clearly, as a parent, I might be doing a little dance and going, woo, woo. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what's really fascinating is when they looked at what they thought might be some of the causes of that. Mm. And one of the causes is that um, they phrase it as uh, they are postulating that young people nowadays have less unstructured, unsupervised face-to-face -face contact. I call that a party. Okay, so basically, they're not hanging out together without the adults around, either, you know, at each other's houses, in the park, in the bus stop. Maybe you're thinking, oh, well, that's a good thing. But actually, what's happening is they're not discovering these things. And if they're not hanging out together with face-to-face -to -face contact, that is not a good thing for young people. Mm -hmm. How are they going to develop their social skills? How are they going to know what are the social cues? What should I be saying? What should I be saying? It's how we all learned. So... I do think um, that we do need to think about how do we get a balance 
And that's why I wrote the blog to say, yes, it's great. Of course, I don't want them smoking, but they are vaping more. So one of the things that's interesting is they are still interested in novel risk taking, which I thought was a good way to phrase it. Um, And we do need to still have those conversations about what is healthy, what is not. But we do need to encourage them to meet up with their mates and hang out together. Mm. And albeit we're not encouraging drug use or alcohol use, but have those conversations that say, you will get offered this stuff. You will, you know, it will come past you. Make your decisions, make good decisions, I know is the phrase, but actually what are the risks and have a conversation that comes from a place of compassion, understanding, but also safety, you know, rather than just lecturing or don't do it or, you know, they'll just ignore all that. So I think natural risk-taking is a really important part Mm -hmm. of being a young person. We need to encourage good risk-taking. And again, I come back to meeting new people, going to new places, trying new activities, eating new foods. They can be the good risks. Mm. And let's see how we get on with encouraging that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Would you say that links back to what you said we're talking about earlier in terms of like the fear of failure? Like what is it that you know, it doesn't seem that risky to go hang out with your friends. But, you know, that in itself, as you say, could be, you know, when you have these ideas about other risk-taking behaviours or, or whatever. So why would it be that the initial barrier even to to spending that unstructured time to going to that party in the first place, do you think? Very interesting, because I should have said this study was done before COVID. So this is nothing to do with COVID. OK, so that decline in risk-taking behaviour was from the mid-90s to 2019. That's what they looked at. Um, then, of course, COVID has completely messed up their social connections and their ability to, to meet people and so on at a really crucial time. Mm. I think, and the researchers think, uh, and the good thing is we all sort of concur about this, that there are several things that have affected how young people look at risk. First of all, and I think this is entirely fair on them, they are very much more aware of looking after themselves, being healthy. Um, Some of that will come because they have to look great on Instagram, but some of it is actually just, you know, smoking's disgusting. Why would you want to do that? And I think, yeah, quite, I agree. I mean, I'm not a smoker, but, you know, it is something that in my youth, nobody said that, (laughs) whereas now they will say it. Um, So I think there's very much that sort of more healthy, educated awareness. They are just more educated. This generation and I am generalising, do like to hang out with mum and dad a lot more. They are a bit more family orientated when they're younger. They're maybe not seeking out to just go and hang out in the park with their mates quite as much. I remember reading one of my many Generation Z books that I love reading about them. And I know it's a bit of a sort of, I'm not calling it a pseudoscience, but it's a bit of an out there thing. But I do think it's fascinating, the differences in the generations. I love that. And one of the things I remember reading was that our generation, so I'm Gen X and we were all like, you know, rock the system, apparently. I never went on a march, but, you know, anyway. But we would have said our heroes were, you know, uh, political people or um, pop stars. Or I don't know, right, really sort of big names, Nelson Mandela, whatever. If you ask Gen Z, the young generation, who their heroes are, they say their mum and dad. Now, I'm not sure that's true for everybody, of course, But that's a really interesting switch. There's something there about they just don't look out quite so much quite so early. uh, And there maybe is something in that for it as well. So that may be part of it. I mean, there are are several other theories in there. And 
as I said, it is a fascinating um, study and the, the blog sort of summarizes quite a lot of that. But it is definitely linked to not wanting to look like a right twit in front of your friends <laughs> on social media or where it can be captured. And there is that element of it as well. Yes. So I thought that was really interesting because once again, I'm getting, you know, you're scratching that sociology itch. And I'm even thinking about the dynamics of family and young people and the roles that, you know, people tend to take on later in life, whether it comes to, you know, they hang out with mother and father a little bit more. Is it the case? I'm not saying that, you know, people are sheltered, but perhaps there's an element of, you know, previous generations wanting to see better by, you know, the generations coming up. Like I even know, like I'm a millennial, I was born in that generation. So I kind of was just born into the tech revolution. Um, but these people, you know, the current group of young people growing up, they are on, you know, that whole idea of like digital residency. We talk about, you know, there's only good things on the feeds. Nobody posts their down days you know, why would I even bother doing that? And then when you think about risk taking, you might look like a little bit, you might look a little bit silly taking those risks. So it's almost like between perhaps the constant monitoring from mom and dad from being there. So, you know, being around them much more and the constant panopticon of being seen online and the pressure to present oneself as being online all the time. I can only imagine the stress that that can provide. And I think back to how I was, you know, going out at university. And if you or your friends wanted to get a bit creative with your outfit, you didn't worry too much because if it turned out to be a complete disaster and you thought, well, I'm never going to wear that again, nobody would remember it a week later. But now you're constantly thinking, well, someone's going to get photos and then I'll look really silly. And so just even being a bit different and a bit creative takes an extra level of brave, you know, challenge and that's just to wear a hat on a funny angle or you know a brightly colored top or whatever and that can feel so challenging because it's going to be online everyone's going to be able to comment on it that was not part of the calculation i was making in my mind when i decided to wear a totally sequined very small skirt to you know to my first party thinking okay if this doesn't work for me i'm going back to really simple jeans and a top you know it it's just we did not have to consider all of that. And it sounds such a small thing. But if even now when I go out, I don't worry about that because my friends, we're not taking photos of ourselves constantly and uh, all for each other and posting them online. So no one is going to comment on my yet again wearing a small black dress. I mean, it's just not a thing. So I think for them all the time, everything is an extra level of pressure. It's why I get so irate when I hear sometimes older academics say, well, it wasn't like this in my day. I don't know what they're all moaning about. They've got it so easy. <laughs> I think you have absolutely no idea what it's like to be 15, 16 years old these days. It is exhausting for them. And it's so it's it's almost like life is complex enough. And then you're looking at these generations like, let's add several more layers of complexities yeah. with various positives and negatives to this. And let's just see how they deal with it. Yes, this. which is why I really struggle with, there is a bit of a narrative, quite a lot of popular, you know, authors and so on now talking about how oh, we talk about mental health too much and we're over-medicalizing it. It is medical. <laughs> it's, a me it's a mental health problem, whether that's you want to give it a diagnosis or not. They are suffering and it is affecting their everyday life. And saying we're over-medicalizing it doesn't help anyone. Instead, we should be looking at the factors that are causing them to feel distress. 
um, and seeing what we can do about it. But yeah, there's a quite, I mean, it's very popular now for people to to say things like that. Mm, why have we created a more competitive society? Do you think as, as older generations, why are we kind of forcing that on younger people? Oh, well, I think it probably started with the sort of the elements of the TV side of things. So I suspect some TV producers thought it was an amazing idea to make let's say, singing much more competitive, where you can look at all the programmes, you know, and then it spread like a virus into all sorts of other fields. They were like, well, that was successful. Let's do making your pet beautiful competition. You know, I mean, it is every extreme now. I honestly cannot believe some of the things that I see each week that are coming out as a new programme, as a competition. So someone somewhere is making a lot of money, and I get that, but it is not helping the younger generation and their view of what is normal in society. And I really can't be doing with people who say to me, oh, yeah, but life is competitive, Dom. And I say, yeah, but fun doesn't have to be. And, you know, I'm conscious, Dominique, that we're coming up to time. But one thing that I really wanted to ask, and it's a bit of a shift in gears, is so my background is service research. I am a big advocate of implementation science, um, sort of how to get the most efficient and effective interventions into the hands of the people that need it in the most efficient way. So a big focus of my work is on the clinicians and the services and effective structures. So, you know, now the the child and adolescent mental health service world, that's starting to be touched by technology and technology-driven interventions. And I know we kind of touched on this before, but Thinking about it from the service and staff point of view, how do you see technology facilitating or making the lives of service staff easier in this world where people are leaving services, they're underfunded, they're underserved? Where do you see technology fitting in to make the services life easier? So my personal view is that we don't want to be replacing all face-to-face contact. Of course, we, as Indeed. I said before, humans need other humans. But it is potentially really helpful in areas where there is going to be a wait or they need some structured support or they need to do some preparatory work before doing something more in depth. So there are definitely areas where technology can be really helpful. I think from a very practical point of view, from any healthcare professional's stance, they are going to want things that make their day easier and i don't mean i don't mean in a like lazy sense i just mean anything that makes it run more smoothly is simple to explain can be safely handed over to people have they have the confidence in it it's not going to involve them you know explaining mountains of like how to use it or what to do if it goes wrong and all of that you know it's got to be making their day to day easier whilst being confident that it could potentially help their client and certainly not make their client worse. And I think, you know, if it can tick some of those boxes, then technology will get adopted. Um, The problem is over the years, the last few years in particular, take out the pandemic, but even before that, we were starting to look at technology. There would always be issues with, well, what do I do if it doesn't work or where do I go? And you, you as a GP or whatever, you've got no skills to sort it all out. So it's got to be something that doesn't make your life more difficult, It really bluntly, um, but that you can have confidence in sort of handing over or you know, signposting somebody to. Uh, that is what I think will allow it to properly become part of the normal day-to-day landscape of healthcare. So Dominique, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, 
I, you know, as I said, I'm not a parent myself, but I definitely was able to take so much out of your work, um, even from using it as a primer to come back to really, really helpful points in my future. The book is now on my shelf. Oh, thank and you so much. And it's, and it's going to stay there. <laughs> but, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing even more. So it's going to be great. Yeah, thanks so much for joining thank us. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Katie. Thank you to my guest today, Dr. Dominique Thompson. If you need further information on any of the services that Silvercloud by Amwell offers in providing support to young people, please find the full details on our website. You can also hear more conversations surrounding digital mental health and listen back to all the previous episodes of CB Talks Online. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode in the series, Please rate and review CB Talks so we can help others discover it too. I'll be back next time looking at another way in which digital technologies are involved in mental health. Goodbye.